Well, dear congregation, I would ask you to please turn your very prayerful attention to that portion of God's word that I read to you in your hearing, 2 Kings chapter 6. In our week-by-week study of God's word, we arrive in this chapter of God's word. And we want to consider certainly the first part of that section that I read, the account of the young men, the sons of the prophets, as the axe head flies into the Jordan River, and we see a miracle of God. And then we'll consider very briefly an introduction to the next section, which, God willing, next time we will look at more fully. But I do want to grasp some of the things there. But let me just bring you on the scene once again to this time in history. The things that we are reading here are real historical accounts. The nation Israel, when we speak of Israel at this particular time, we are speaking of the ten northern tribes, also known by the capital of that place, which was Samaria. That was the capital city of the ten tribes in the north. Jerusalem is in the south, and the two tribes there, far more faithful than the north, are Judah and Benjamin. But at this time... Israel in the north, the ten tribes, have gone very quickly headlong into rank apostasy and heathen worship. But God is still yet being kind to this nation that he brought out of Egypt so many years ago, and there are still faithful prophets. We know from our previous studies there is Elijah. Elijah was taken up by a whirlwind, and the chariots of fire and the horses of fire came. And we see them again even in this chapter, unseen by natural men. But indeed they took him up in a whirlwind in chapter 2 of 2 Kings. But again, times are very bleak here in Samaria, Israel in the north. The ten tribes have gone into this terrible apostasy. But remember there are 7,000 that still have not bowed the knee to Baal. Remember what the Lord said to Elijah, who was in despair, because there was Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. Wicked people. They were putting to death the prophets. But Obadiah, the right-hand man of Ahab, hid them. A hundred of the Lord's prophets by fifties in caves. And there were at least a hundred of them still around. And the Lord is faithful. Why? Because the Lord Jesus must come into the world. You say, well, how do you mean that? Well, this nation must continue to exist because the Lord had promised not just to these tribes, but particularly to Judah in the south, who the Lord would bring the Savior to and through. Now, there are clearly, as I said, 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. We call them a remnant, and even it is so today. And we have to understand this. Just We need to understand that not everybody in the church is truly in the church. Not everybody who says they're a Christian are a Christian. No, the remnant, those who fear God and will who obey him no matter what, these are the Christians. And these people were terribly persecuted. 
And these prophets, even them now, think of them, many of them have hidden in the caves. And now we read of the sons of the prophets. Some suggest these are those that have followed on in their stead and perhaps a rising generation and of believers. Of course, the Lord has raised them. He said there will always be a remnant. And Elisha, this prophet of the Lord, his ministry is to equip them for the work of preaching in the land. Look at verse 1. And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold, now the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us, or too small. Let us go, we pray thee, unto Jordan, and take thence every man a beam. They were living in the wilderness. They were persecuted. And uh, were they having to live in this sort of lodge, building these log cabins out in the middle of nowhere? Let us make us a place there where we may dwell. And this is encouraging, isn't it? We see that the place where they're staying is too small. And now this is the account. Now we know at this particular time from our earlier studies, there were at least three cities in this northern kingdom that had what we would call places of teaching or schools where the sons of the prophet, prophets went and Elisha would instruct them. Those three places are Bethel, Jericho, and Gilgal. And more than likely, where they are now because of the geographical location, Elisha is near Gilgal. And you notice that these sons of the prophets, these young men, they call themselves servants. And they called Elisha master. This shows, first of all, the esteem that they held Elisha in. They held him in great esteem. And you've got to remember that these are difficult days when men despise the word of God. Do you remember there were the youth that said to Elisha, go up thou bald head, go up thou bald head. And Elisha turned around and cursed them. Of course, by the power of God. And those youths, 42 of them, were consumed by she-bears. They came out of the woods. God sent them. It was a, a day of great despising of the word of God, a day of great disrespect. But here we have a remnant. Here we have the sons of the prophets, and they call Elisha master. They call themselves servants. And these young men, they desire us. We saw it last time. Remember in the previous chapters how they were foraging around for food. And remember there was death in the pot. Some of them put those wild girds, or one of them went and found some wild girds and put them in the pot. As I said, when there was a time of famine, people spent most of the day looking for food. But there they were at the feet of Elisha, wanting to be instructed. And here, it seems that the work is expanding. The Lord is raising up more young men to preach. And we need that today, friends. We need men to preach the word of God and to live fearlessly in this day of great compromise. Now, there are many things to observe from this passage. It, it's amazing what we see in the word of God so often. And uh, 
we pray that the Lord will give us great insight and application to what we read. And it's, first of all, worth observing that there is great apostasy in the land. And it's encouraging to see what the Lord is doing amongst these sons of the prophets. The place, it says in verse 1, is too straight for us. It's too small. They've got to expand. But I want you to notice the humility of these young men. I want you to notice they, they don't decide off their own bat to go and build somewhere. They seek Elisha's counsel. They seek Elisha's approbation. We want your approval. How different to so many places today where the young people just want to take over the church. That's, that's not the way God works. Elisha was a faithful minister of the word of God. And young people, you have a lot to learn from those that have gone before. And here, look at the way they held him in great regard. Of course, we don't make idols of ministers or preachers or pastors. But those, as Paul says to Timothy, who are in the faith, hold him in high regard. Those that have been faithful. Now notice what one says. They, they not only want to go and build a bigger place, but they want Elisha to also go along. Verse 3, and one said, be content. That's to Elisha, I pray thee, go and go with thy servants. Come with us. They want his company. In other words, they're not on some mission to try and prove to Elisha that, you know, the, we have a lot more than you have. They're not on some sort of um, ego trip. We can build this place. No, they are seeking the very presence of one who is older and they need his guidance. They are not some free-spirited, self-styled mavericks. We don't need that today. You know, the truth is unchanging. If it's new, let me say this, it'll more than likely be error. If it's new, we don't introduce anything new into the church. You know, the church is not to change with the times. The truth stays the same. And men are to go on in the same way as other men. They are not on some kind of hero mission to build a, a place and show the old man a few things. No, not at all. Remember what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now re remember, Paul is writing to a young pastor. And these things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou unto faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. You see what Paul is saying to young Timothy? You as a young man, you must pass on just as I have committed to you truths and the way of life. He said, you, you, you've seen my, my manner of life and my doctrine. You pass this on to others. Friends, if there's new things, you can be sure it's not of the Lord. It's not of the Lord. Now, we want to walk safely in this life as Christians and we want the church to walk in the ways of God. And uh, surely, we ought to value those that have gone before us and those who set an example and who have fear 
for the Lord. We're reminded, aren't we, in Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey them that have rule over you, and submit yourselves. Now, if you're not a church member, and if you're not under the church, you don't have anybody to rule over you. How can you therefore submit to that commandment? So that's why it's important, isn't it, to have accountability to a local body of people and to be under the tutelage and counsel of those whom the Lord has put over us. Ephesians 4, we're reminded, when he, that is Christ, led captivity captive, he gave some to be pastors and teachers. Why? For the edifying of the body of Christ, so that we might all come to that mature man in the faith. And so these things are necessary. Ephesians 4.12, some he gave to be pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I'm sure you realize that those that are given to the church are Christ's gifts. They don't boast in themselves. Whatever gifting we have is from the Lord. We don't boast in any natural ability. Well, we have no natural ability, really. It has to be of the Lord. Now, you notice, they want him to go with, and he goes with. And then finally, when they get down to the Jordan, they're cutting down wood, verse 4. So he went with them, and when they came to Jordan, they cut down wood. Now, we read in verse 5 that something takes place here, and just as well, Elisha went with them. This is all part of the the providence of God. Uh, The providence of God is an amazing thing, isn't it? It truly is. And you see, you can see God's hand in this. How God will bless these young men in their endeavors, in their desire to serve the Lord. Now notice, but as one, verse 5, was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water. And he cried and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. Now there's several things I wish to point out from this man's exclamation and his great concern. Many people, if they borrow something, they're not bothered if it gets lost. You ever borrow, lend somebody your tools or something? They don't care whether it's lost or broken. But this man has a concern. We'll look at the law of God in a minute. And it shows this young man's right spirit. That here is a right-spirited young man. He has respect for somebody else's property. And uh, he's concerned about his inability to work. Having heard of this, Axe head coming off and flying into the Jordan. Well, Elisha comes and the Lord performs a miracle. Now, things upon this young man's mind ought to be the same spirit we have as Christians. In Exodus 22, you may wish to turn there to verse 14. Exodus twenty two fourteen. we read this. And if a man borrow ought, that word ought means anything, right? And if a man borrow ought of his neighbor, and it be hurt, or die, the owner thereof being not with it, he, notice, shall surely make it good. The Bible does not teach communism. The Bible does not 
teach socialism, my friends. But the right to personal property, stealing, communism is theft. Socialism is theft. Somebody's worked hard for something, you don't have a right to take it. Or if you've damaged something, you've broken something, you need to give it back. You need to repay it. Somebody loans money, and that should be a very rare thing for a Christian. You pay it back. It's only right. God commands it. And this young man, you can see his conscience is terribly troubled. He doesn't want to give God a bad name. He doesn't want to give the seminary a bad name. He doesn't want to dishonor God. Now, you can understand nonetheless his predicament. And he, of course, he wants to be part of this work. What's going to happen? He, he's lost his productivity now. He can't fell down trees. He can't contribute. And that ought to be the spirit of every Christian. My friends in the church, they ought to be no seat warmers. But people who are industrious. We read, didn't we, from Ephesians. How he who stole, steal no longer. He who used to lie, let him lie no longer. We have renounced hidden ways of darkness. We are changed. We realize that everything given to us is a gift from Almighty God. And this is how you love your neighbor. Remember what the Lord Jesus said, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know what Confucius said? And it just goes to show how man-centered Confucius was. And Buddhism is man-centered. Confucius said, don't do to others what you don't want done to yourself. In other words, you're just looking out for number one. But the Lord, you see, the positive of his commandment, do to others what you would want done for yourself. You see how much, you see the superlative. Confucius is saying, look out for yourself. If you don't want somebody bang you on your head, don't bang them on the head. But the Lord Jesus goes far and beyond. This is love to God and to fellow men. You see how the law of God, you see how the Bible is far more superior than man-centered and man-made religions. Well, think of this man. He's, he's borrowed something. He's in a terrible predicament now because they're very poor, these sons of the... They can't pay back. How are they going to do... Iron was extremely expensive to make. It was a long process. And how are these young men going to... How is he going to, to make good? How is he going to make restitution? When you consider the value of an axe head, it was tremendous. It was a lot of money in those days. And they were especially also in a, in a very vulnerable situation because bear in mind that the prophets, as was God, was despised in this generation. You see that? The country could care less about God's servants. If they can't pay back, put them in prison, do something. No mercy. No mercy in the land. 
And think of it, if Jehoram were a godly king, he would have provided, surely, for the sons of the prophets. If he was concerned about the glory of God, he would have provided for Elisha and these sons. But he wasn't. In fact, he hated, as his fathers did, the prophets. They despised the prophets. Now, this is amazing. And it's just as well, and, and you can see God's hand how, in, in all of this, how they asked for Elisha to come. And Elisha was there. And then when all went wrong, you see God's amazing provision. How does it take place? Well, the Lord knows everything. And what we see here is Elisha throws a stick in the water. And then the axe head floats. Now this, once again, is not a miracle done off the cuff. In other words, Elisha didn't think, well, this is a good idea. God clearly, we're told in Hebrews 1, God spoke to the prophets directly. There's a direct word of revelation given to Elisha. Elisha, do this. Take a stick. Throw it. He's he's not come up with some idea. Now, many have taken this miracle, many critics, and they say, well, it's a fishing out of the axe head with a stick. But it doesn't say that. What does it say? It says the iron did swim. Many have said, well, Elisha was there with a little stick. No, fished out the axe head. No, no, it doesn't say. It says he threw the stick and the hole floated. The actual axe head, there was nothing connected to it. The stick was a means by which the axe head did float. Look at verse 6b. And he cut down a stick and cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. Therefore said he, take it up thee, take up to thee. And he put out his hand and took it. The young man came a little bit further. Of course, the Jordan River was a mighty flowing river. We mustn't lose that in our mind. Now again, some have really tried to play games with the words of Scripture here. But it says the iron did float. Now what is God showing here? God is showing in his word that he is over the natural forces of nature. That's why I read from the gospel of Matthew where the Lord Jesus walks on water. Why? Because he is over nature. Because he is God. And even Peter was able to walk on water. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, you see, is able to overturn the laws of nature. The laws of nature exist because God has determined them. But here what we see is God, despite the laws of nature, he can work as he will. The Lord, you think of it, creation is a classic example of this. We read... Right in the beginning of the word, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What we call ex nihilo, that's out of nothing. There was nothing. And God said, let there be. And there was. He created the world, 
that we live in in six literal days. He could have done it in one day, but he, he did it in six days, and then he rested on the seventh to give us a pattern. It says that he rested, not, not that God needed to rest, but he gave us a pattern to we rest, because we are made in his image. And so God, you think the scientist has a big problem. I often say this in the open air when people conjecture. And you can argue from a scientific point of view, but that can't save anybody, let me just say. Apologetics don't save people, but they can be useful. You say, and you can say this, the scientist has a big difficulty in explaining how even the smallest particle could ever be in existence. Because where did it come from? And yet we've got a whole universe full of particles. Where did that come from? So it didn't just come out of nowhere. And you've got order, not chaos. The chaos is in people's minds. The chaos is in people's heads because the heart is deceitful because we're told in the word of God, the fool is said in his heart, there's no God. Not his head. He knows in his head there is a God. As we're told, God has shown it to him. Romans chapter 1. So there we read of that account of the Lord Jesus Christ. How the disciples, they saw him on the water, walking, coming. And all of that was ordained by Jesus Christ. You remember, just before that, he had fed thousands of people. And he sent the disciples in the ship and he went to pray for them. And he, who made the seas, walks on the seas. He who was once with the disciples in the boat said to the sea, Be still. And the sea was still. My friends, this very one is God. You cannot deny the deity of Christ. You cannot deny his power. And again here, the prophet Elisha, given power by God. In fact, we owe everything to God. And you know, every time this young man picked up that axe, he would have to think, I'm only holding this because of God. It's the same for you, for me. The things you have, my friend, they're all from God. Your life, your beating heart, your eyes, your ears, that's all from God. And the only reason you are here is because of God and me. But how do we live to him? Well, this young man, you see, he wanted to honor God. And God honored him. It's true. Those who honor God, he will honor. He take care of your needs. He had a loss for a while. And sometimes, you know, the Lord will allow us. Remember Mary and Martha and Lazarus? Do you remember how it was allowed that Lazarus would die? Well, it was for the good of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Oh, yes. And sometimes as Christians, we'll have to suffer loss. But it'll always be to God's glory. It'll always be to the good of our souls. 
Another lesson we can learn is nothing's hid from God. You see, God has already providentially arranged everything here. The word must go forth. But God is at work, isn't he? Amidst these young men, working in them, trust and obedience to the Lord. Jeremiah 23, 24, Can any hide himself in secret places, says the Lord, that I shall not see him? Do not I fill heaven and earth? saith the Lord. There's nothing hid from him in your life, Christian. You're struggling with things. Maybe things are very difficult. But the Lord knows. The Lord knows all your troubles. He knows all your needs. And they are going to work for your good if you love him. This young man, and I don't see the others, the young men saying, don't be so silly, Elisha. Why cut down? Do you see the faith exercise too? We need to exercise our faith. Well, there are a number of lessons to learn from this passage, not only what I've just said, but I want you to think, first of all, man's limitation and God's power. We're limited. But God will work through our limitations, will he not? Often the Lord brings us to a place of helplessness in our lives. And of course, all of those times and places are all ordered by Almighty God, who is over all things. And there's nothing hid from him. Even the smallest thing, even this little axe head, was not something too small for the Lord. He knows the need. And he says to Elisha, Alas, Master, for it was borrowed. I want you to, to see the Lord is concerned when we have godly concerns. This young man was concerned that he was going to give it back. My friends, the Lord is concerned for those who are concerned for holiness. And who want to honor his name in this short life. We don't want to discredit it. We don't want to dishonor him. Is that where your heart is? I must ask, what are you concerned about? Legitimate things? These are the things that matter. Remember what the Lord Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be provided for you. Where is your heart? For where your heart is, said the Lord, there is your home. This young man showed a godly character. And as Christians, it ought never to be said of us that we're thieves, that we use people. Never. Never. I'm very careful. What I borrow, we should all be as a Christian. If I can't pay it back, I won't borrow it. It's wrong. Scriptures say in Romans 13, owe no man anything except to love. So all you owe people is love. That's the law, isn't it? To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind. Now, what is your spirit? The world's always looking out for number one, isn't it? But that ought to never be said of a Christian. It's a blight what these so-called 
televangelists do. They make merchandise of men's souls and they pervert the gospel in such a blasphemous way. Oh, my friends, let us be careful that our affections are on the right things. We're desiring the things that are good. Paul says, be careful for nothing or be anxious. The word is merimano. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. Whatever it is, child of God, if you're walking in such a way as to honor God, he will make sure that you never dishonor him if your desire is to live a holy life. That should be our principal aim. Well, there are many lessons. The second lesson is our instinctive responses to dark and mysterious providences that may come in our lives are revealing to our character. The way you respond to a situation reveals whether you have faith or not. You hear what I'm saying? Look at the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, how many respond to trials. They, 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 they know more. And look at this young man. He didn't say, well, it was just a cheap axe head anyway. And the owner will understand. He's not concerned about that. He's concerned about the right thing. He makes no excuses. He doesn't say, well, it wasn't really my fault. No. And we take onus. Let me say this. For the things that we have failed to do in our lives as Christians. And we can bring it before the Lord. And if we're sincere, if we're honest, the Lord will be very gracious, my friends. Very gracious. His concern is, how am I going to pay it back? Thirdly, Christians should be more careful about things that they loan than even their own goods. Why? It's not to say I'm, so, I'm not saying we should be careless about our things, but I am saying we should care about the honor of God. We should be good stewards of what we have. Everything you have, don't squander it. What about your time? Don't squander your time. You know, it's the most valuable thing we have, isn't it? You can replace money, but you can't replace time. Time spent with the Lord is the most important time. How much time have you given in the Word of God, reading, praying, because it's, it's here as we, you read the word of God that we, we get real meat and food for life. That we get real understanding. And you can't replace time. You know, we, we can only pray here on earth. In heaven there'd be no praying. Because we'll see God to face to face. But here time is short. Something else Fourthly, God is concerned about even the smallest situations of our lives. I know I've emphasized this already, but it's true. Peter, what does he say? Cast all your burdens, not some of them, casting all our cares upon him, for he careth for us. What is your greatest need, my friend? Holiness. Holiness. A godly life. 
not possessions. That's the greatest need. And that will be met, my friends, under the instruction of God's word. Whether it's at home, but especially God is pleased to do it in a setting like this. Where we are given, the preacher has spent hours studying God's word to bring it to your soul. When somebody says, oh, I want personal study in my home, would you come and do it? I don't mind doing that. But I refuse to do that if you won't come here. If you won't be regular with us on the Lord's Day, morning and evening. Because you're sapping my time and energy. See what I'm saying? And you're not bothered about God's ordained means of blessing. I'm very happy to spend hours with people, but not if you're neglecting the things that you should be doing. That's wrong. I would be a very bad steward of my time. Do you not understand that? I hope. There's a little hymn by John Newton regarding this in his only hymns. He says this, the prophets' sons in time of old, though to appear poor, were rich without possessing gold, and honoured though obscure. In peace their daily bread they ate, by honest labour earned, while daily at Elisha's feet they grace and wisdom learned. The prophets present shared their toil, they watched the words he spake, whether they turned the forehead soil, or felled the spreading oak. Once, as they listened to his theme, their conference was stopped. For one, beneath the yielding stream, a borrowed axe had dropped. Alas, it was not mine, he said. How shall I make it good? Elisha heard, when he prayed, the iron swam like wood. If God in such a small affair a miracle performs, if shows his condescending care of pearl unworthy worms, though kings and nations in his view are but as motes in the dust, his eye and ear are fixed on you who in his mercy trust. Not one concern of ours is small if we belong to him. To teach us this, the Lord of all once made the iron swim. And my friend, I take you back to that account that we read. Did the Lord Jesus not come walking on the water to his disciples? And did not the Lord give power to Peter to do so when it seemed impossible? But where did Peter go? Did, he, did Peter say, oh Lord, I fancy a little walk on the... Sea of Galilee. Peter walked towards the Lord. And I'll tell you this, in your life as a Christian, that's what you must do. You must get closer to Christ. Christian life is not a game. It's about honoring the one and wanting to be with the one that we love. And we, we thank the Father for him. Because this one who is God, who could control the seas and everything, went to the cross for his people.
and bore their sins in his own body. But I want you to think, when we look at the great picture here of the providence of God in arranging this whole affair, it's amazing, isn't it? They asked for Elisha to go with. That was no accident. Think of what would happen if Elisha wasn't there. The work would have halted. It doesn't seem like there's many other axes around. They all might have despaired of how we're going to pay back. But friends, God is there where we honor him, where we seek to glorify his name. I want to close just a few thoughts now as we move to the next scene. We've seen the, this amazing miracle, but I'll just introduce you to that which we'll consider more fully next time. You notice here in verse 8, the king of Syria warred against Israel. This is astounding, especially what's happened in the previous chapter. Can you not remember? I, I, I'm sure you can. Who was healed? Naaman. Behold the ingratitude of the world, my friends. Naaman, the military commander of the Syrian army. And the king of Syria goes to war against Israel, who healed his general. And behold the power of God. The Lord starts giving military intelligence to Elisha that there's going to be a battle in this place and that place and all the plans of this king of Syria are thwarted and he wonders and I want you to, to sort of notice in the first instance the foolishness of men's hearts how men of this world don't have an understanding of the true and the living God what he says he says to his men, he, who of you is the spy in the camp? In other words, who of you is, is, is giving intelligence to the king of Israel? And the servant comes back and says, nobody. But Elisha knows. Elisha, the very one who sent Naaman down to the Jordan River to go in there seven times. It's Elisha. And then you notice what happens. The king, he sends a great number of men to Elisha. And it seems that Gehazi is not the servant now, because there's a young man. Remember, Gehazi was struck with leprosy because he took the money from Naaman. And there... They're in that city. Elisha rises up early in the morning and the city is surrounded by the Syrians. And the young man comes in and he's fearing. What's going to happen to us? We're going to die. And Elisha says, Lord, open the young man's eyes to see what he can't see. Them that are for us far outweigh them that are against us. And you've got to believe that, child of God, in your life. You have a God in heaven that is over all things.
We won't go into this chapter, but I just want to close with that. Those who fear the Lord need fear nothing else. If you love him, obey him. Because he is such a gracious God that he gave his son. And they that honor him, he will not withhold any good thing. Christ, who is very God, gave himself, the Father gave him, and he gave himself. Will he withhold anything? from them that walk uprightly. The Lord opened this man's eyes to see a host, the host of the army of the Lord. And I pray, as I'm sure many here are praying, for those who are still in darkness, that you will see that there is a God over all. And the one you need to fear is him. The one you need to bow to is him and adore him. He's coming soon. He's coming soon. I know not when, but I pray people will be ready. Until then, we give thanks that God is so good. So good that he brings trials in our life to wean us from this world to wean us from sin, self, from man, to trust in him. Amen.